Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational program, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. As I am recording this, the White House is busy doing damage control over revelations that Donald Trump revealed sensitive information to the Russians when he met with the Russian ambassador and foreign minister the day after he fired the FBI director. But at the same time, the White House is also preparing for Trump's first foreign trip as president. The first stop is Saudi Arabia, followed by Israel, and then to Europe, including to Brussels for a NATO summit. On the line with me to discuss the strategic and political implications of this trip is Dave DeRoche, an associate professor at National Defense University. We discuss the significance of choosing Saudi Arabia as Trump's first foreign destination and what's on the agenda during that visit. On Israel, we discuss the lingering question over the location of the United States Embassy and what potential consequences around the world could result from a decision to move the embassy to Jerusalem. And finally, we discuss what to expect from the NATO summit. This episode is short but sweet and a good overview of the key issues on the agenda during Trump's first foreign foray. If you're a regular listener, you've probably noticed a slightly different introduction denoting this podcast's new partnership with Humanity in Action. I am thrilled about this partnership. Stay tuned at the end of this interview for a longer explanation by me about Humanity in Action and what this partnership entails. For now, here is Dave DeRoche. First off, as you know, Trump is not a conventional person. The convention is that you go to Canada, maybe Mexico for your first visit. I think it shows that he's driven by his agenda, not by precedent. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. And then I think it shows the importance of Saudi Arabia. It really is a key partner um, if we're going to get anything done in the Middle East. And I think he recognizes that. And then finally, I think it, it uh, it's going to play very well in Saudi Arabia, just the fact that he is going there, regardless of what comes out of it. That shows a level of respect that, um, you know, the Saudis will find extremely reassuring. So what do you suspect to be on the itinerary? I mean, as we are speaking, news broke that uh, Trump is supposed to give a speech on Islam, which seems um, not necessarily like the conventional thing that a president might do in Saudi Arabia. Uh, but uh, beyond that, which may or may not be scrapped, like what do you think is actually going to be on the headline on the itinerary? Okay. Well, I, if if Trump gives a speech on Islam. Uh, I think it, it'll be it should be viewed as um, an analog to the Obama Cairo speech, which was also on Islam, albeit indirectly. I don't think it'll be theology. I think it'll be more about radical Islam or Islamist terror. You know how we see it, what we think will go on, and I think that it will probably. Um, it will be his formal laying out a marker saying, you know, we understand that this is not Islam as it is generally practiced. This is not common Islam. And then it will probably be followed up by a, a request for the leaders of the Islamic countries to distance themselves from the, you know, the strain that claims to be Islam that's practiced by groups like Daesh and Al-Qaeda. Uh, I, I don't think it'll be that different from the general uh, trend of past American pronouncements on Islam. Um, 
So, so beyond that, though, in terms of like underlying pillars of U.S. Mm-hmm. Saudi relationship, I mean, how do you expect any of those pillars to to shift under the Trump administration and with this this visit? And could you describe, I think, some of the key elements of the Saudi U.S. Yeah. relationship? Well, the the first uh, element of the Saudi U.S. relationship is I think the United States welcomes Saudi Arabia kind of. Uh, taking taking the lead as sort of a, a leader in the Islamic world, um, advancing our security interests in parallel with their security interests, but sort of um, um, it, it's important that we partner with Saudi Arabia to show that the things we're doing is it's not the United States versus Muslims. It is the United States and Muslims versus a common threat. Um, so, so just the symbolism in many ways is will be more important than anything practical that comes out of it. The second thing I think that he will be pushing for is um, some sort of support for the government of Iraq, a recognition that if, if the countries around Iraq, uh, like Saudi Arabia, which have viewed the Iraqi government, not without justice as beholden to Iran, that if a strong central government isn't developed in in Iraq, then Iran will fill that vacuum as they have done. And uh, that's going to be a hard sell. Um, and then I think he's going to want to reassure them that the United States is engaged in the region, that we're not withdrawing from the region. Um, there's been a perception um, that under President Obama, the United States withdrew from the region. I think that's an unjust uh, conclusion, but you know, perceptions aren't about justice. They're about how people think. And uh, that that was tagged to Obama. So I think he's going to try to say to, to draw a difference between him and President Obama and say, no, the United States will remain an active security partner in the region. And, and, and I guess, do you suspect that um, this kind of demonstration of, of support of partnership with Saudi Arabia is will be accompanied by a harder line taken towards Iran. I mean, you said earlier that Saudi Arabia is kind of like the yeah. like the, the kind of the key U.S. ally in the region that's pushing back against, from Saudi's perspective, Iran expansionism, whether it's in Yemen or in Iraq or or elsewhere. You have this kind of key fundamental dynamic shaping geopolitics of the Middle East, which is that Iran Saudi rivalry, right? Right. You know, but honestly, it's hard to see what the United States and Saudi Arabia can do against Iran that they're not already doing. Um, It's remarkable to me during the campaign, and this happens a lot, but President Trump or candidate Trump argued against the Iran deal, saying it was horrible. He was going to tear it up. And then once he becomes president, you can't really tell any difference in implementation between um, the Obama administration and the Trump administration, with the exception of the uh, cash payments uh, transferred as a result of the outstanding uh, uh, weapon sales that date from the Shah's regime. So there's really not a whole lot of practical difference. And when you see the same policy uh, being pursued from two uh, different ideological perspectives, that kind of shows you that there really aren't any other good options out there. So, um, you know, there'll probably be uh, uh, a solicitation of support for units in the Iraqi government, like the Iraqi special forces, um, for a more vocal disavowal of Daesh and other groups that claim to be acting in the interests of Islam in general and Sunni Muslims in particular. Uh, but it's but it's hard to see... Um, any major shifts coming out of it. 
And do you expect or suspect that sort of the domestic uh, issues happening here in the United States, the firing of the FBI director, the new revelations about the leak of supposedly previously classified information uh, uh, to the Russian uh, ambassador and Russian foreign minister during Trump's meeting, that that may um, affect how Saudis interact with Trump and the highest members of the, the Trump administration in any sort of meaningful way? No, no. I think that's that's Washington inside baseball. And, um, um, you know, what we're talking about are policy differences that are characterized as in more lurid terms. But uh, these guys will realize their policy differences unless you start to see, uh, you know, the Trump administration really taking on, uh, you know, water. Uh, you know, take, taking a shot below the water line and, and the ship starting to sink, they're going to deal with him as president of the United States and as a president whose policy pronouncements they are generally in favor of. Uh, the domestic stuff, that stays domestically. So so you said earlier that the, sort of the, one of the big outcomes was this, of, of Trump's visit to Saudi Arabia is this kind of symbolic demonstration of a partnership between mm-hmm. like the kind of spiritual leaders of, of Sunni Islam and the United States. But then you have the president going to Israel, where he has taken a very kind of hardline approach in, in sort of defense of uh, the right wing government in Israel. And I suspect that while in Israel, uh, there may be some symbolism that that pushes the other way, that, that is another sort of further demonstration of American steadfast support for the kind of Likud right-wing Israeli government that, that seems to be having taken shape already in the Trump administration. So how sort of might yeah. those symbols sort of negate from the previous sort of symbolic importance of visiting to I, I got to tell you that yeah. that's a good question that's the that's the $64,000 question well one of the one of the points i think the saudis you asked me what trump will say to the saudis the big question is what will the saudis say to trump and i think one of the things they will tell him is do not shift the us embassy to jerusalem and you'll notice you know cam, candidate trump gave the impression that he would do that on January 21st, and it hasn't happened. And I think they're going to say, look, everything is, uh, you know, all bets are off if you do that. And um, and th- that's going to be hammered into him. Um, and I don't think he's going to shift the, em- the embassy. I, I really don't. Uh, be, and in large part because of that. I think typically when the president goes to Israel, there's usually the um, – uh, announcement of further weapon sales. But, you know, Trump has been kind of forward leaning on it. He had Abu Mazen in the White House. I can't recall another president doing that so early in his term. So I think um, President Trump is is a little bit different than candidate Trump. And aside from the embassy, pal- embassy to Jerusalem issues, uh, the Saudi Arabians and the uh, Israelis, there's not a whole lot of tension between them right now. Um, they Their view on Iran is are identical. You cannot tell the policies apart. So uh, there, there really is a harmony of interest here. And and I think Trump would be, will be, and would be very wise to uh, to just not you know mess with that. The dynamics are going his way on this. So I think I think it'll be as um, I think it'll be as as low key as it is possible. So on uh, the question of of moving the embassy, I mean, I know that you study Gulf politics very closely. Like, what would be the impact impact effect of that? Should that happen? I I think it's probably like a low. Uh, probability that that the embassy actually yeah. moves. Yeah. Just, uh, but it, it would be disastrous. It would be disastrous. Like what? Like what, what? What would you expect to, to happen? Well, the problem is, you know, all of the countries in the Gulf 
uh, you know, and and many of our uh, allies that are majority Muslim countries um, claim to rule in the interests of Islam. You know, like it's in their constitutions, it's in the Pakistani constitution, it's in the Afghan constitution. Um, to for the United States to effectively recognize that Jerusalem, which is, you know, along with Mecca and Medina, are the three you know holiest cities in Islam, to say, oh no 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 no, we are recognizing the annexation of Jerusalem by the Jewish state. Um, that calls into question, uh, it raises the question of whether uh, an Islamic state can cooperate with a state that allows this to happen. So it, it, it really, it, it questions the entire underpinning of relations in the United States with these countries in a way that just doesn't work in our favor. So, you know. So it, it, does it question the underpinning or just doesn't make it like a little bit harder, right? Like wouldn't... wouldn't... No, 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 no. It, 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 calls it, it calls it into question because it, it basically says, you know, a city that, that um, has Islamic holy sites uh, the United States views that it should never be under the jurisdiction of Muslims. It should be under the jurisdiction of Jews. Well, so like Malaysia and is going to like cut off diplomatic relations with the U.S. over this? At least for a period of time. Huh. Malaysia Malaysia is the secular state. Um, yeah, well, I, I, uh, I picked that uh, but purpose, But yeah. Pakistan... And Malaysia Pakistan. actually does have relations yeah. with Israel, like in, in diplomatic relations with Israel. That's right. That's right. Because they're they're a secular state. They just have a lot of Muslims in it. But consider, for example, um, you know, when when you had one crazy guy in Florida threatening to burn a Quran, and uh, you know, the, the commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan, you know, at the time General Petraeus was personally calling him, saying, "Please don't do this. This is going to set our war effort back." Now imagine what that would happen when the word gets around Afghanistan, where we have fewer forces on the ground. We're trying to convince people that the Afghan government is a reliable government that represents their interests, one of which is Islam. And then we find out that their trainers there are supporting the annexation of the third holiest city in Islam to Jewish sovereignty in perpetuity. Um, that would greatly complicate our tactical situation in Afghanistan. So, um, and, and that's just the, the, the earliest example that comes to my mind. So it, it would be a very, very bad move. And it would be very hard for countries like Saudi Arabia, which claim to rule in the interests of Islam, to justify a continuing presence and cooperation with us. So Trump's last stop on this first foreign foray is to Brussels uh, for a NATO summit. And I would say the fact that he's actually going to the NATO summit is is sort of significant in and of itself. There was some question, obviously, early in his tenure whether or not the president would attend the summit. And if he didn't, there was speculation. I've, I've talked to people on the podcast who study NATO that it could really be the beginning of the end of the transatlantic alliance and NATO if, if he declined to attend. But he is going to attend. So there's at least some um, some hope there, I suppose, for the transatlantic alliance and NATO to to endure in, in in one way or the other. What do you sort of expect from sort of that symbolic uh, demonstration of of Trump being in NATO? Yeah, well, well, I worked NATO affairs for a number of years uh, on the, both the Joint Staff and in the Office of Secretary of Defense, and I got to tell you, I have heard repeated um, not presidents but secretaries of defense saying. Why do we hold this thing? Because, you know, all 28 countries have to say their piece. They're always written down in advance. Um, in all of the NATO ministerials I've been to, I can only recall one spontaneous comment being made. Uh, so at least at the Secretary of Defense level, 
um, I've heard a number of senior people say, uh, this is a waste of my time. <laughs> and, and I wouldn't read into it any great um, question of the Transatlantic Alliance. It's more a question of the need to have a ministerial and the expense that that views uh, it. And I'm sure the same thing applies at the presidential level. So I think that this, you know, all the United States is withdrawing from now. That's overblown. Um, you know, the, the president visiting Brussels isn't what makes NATO. It's thousands, tens of thousands of American soldiers in Europe. That's what makes NATO strong. Um, I, uh, you know, the fact that he agreed to go, um, you know, it's, it's, well, it's probably going to be reassuring for, to to allies yeah, who are yeah, questioning yeah, the say, president's commitment. It's, it's reassuring, but uh, I think um, with this president particularly, you know, once he gets there and sees people, you know, sitting in this huge circle where you know, since everybody has to be the same distance away, you're you're over fifty meters away from the guy on the other side of the circle, and seeing these guys looking down and reading their prescriptive remarks, I think this president quite possibly will do what I've seen a lot of senior leaders do saying, you know, why do I have to spend three days here? Um, couldn't they just mail me their comments, you know, and, and have some bilateral meetings. Um, and, and I think that, um, you know, we've got to remember that these guys are human and they don't have much time. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a little, um, it's it's overwrought to read too much into their desire to not go to these events that are canned, prescriptive, and very little that's useful comes out of them. All right. Well, but Dave, it is good that he's going. Well, thank you so much, Dave. I appreciate your time. All right. Big thank you to Dave DeRoche, who I should note is speaking in his own capacity. I should also note that Dave so graciously lent me 15 minutes of his time for a special bonus episode for premium subscribers that very succinctly and concisely explains the genesis and the big moments of the Syrian civil war. It's as good as an explanation of the Syrian civil war in 15 minutes as you will get. So premium subscribers, check that out. And if you want to become a premium subscriber, just follow the links on globaldispatchespodcast.com or in the description field of this podcast. So, Humanity in Action. I am so, so thrilled, as this at the outset, to announce a partnership with Humanity in Action. I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow, and I have been for, geez, probably like 15 years. Humanity in Action is an international education program that runs fellowships for university students and also has continuing opportunities for university students who have completed the program and then move on in their careers to do other things, great things uh, around the world. I completed my summer program in Amsterdam in 2001, the summer of 2001. And you know, a big part of this show, this podcast, is talking to people who've had careers in foreign policy and ask them what were some of the big events and experiences that shaped their worldview from an early age. And without a doubt, one of the key formative experiences in my life, in my intellectual development, was the summer fellowship program I did in Humanity in Action in 2001. It exposed me to a range of people I'd never met before, to ideas I'd never encountered, and to an entire network of individuals who, like me, cared about the world, cared about trying to make the world a little bit of a better place, and dedicated themselves and their lives and now their careers to doing so. 
Let me tell you what this partnership entails in terms of content for the podcast. From time to time, I will interview people in the Humanity in Action Network about their lives and careers and topical issues around the world. I've actually done a bit of this already without specifically denoting it. Some previous guests have been members of the Humanity in Action community. I am now thrilled to more regularly integrate Humanity in Action voices into this podcast, and that includes other senior fellows, board members, speakers and other people affiliated with Humanity in Action in one way or another. I'm thrilled to more regularly integrate these voices into the podcast, and you can learn more about the organization at humanityinaction.org. See you next time. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.